Tonight, we're going to focus on Israel and the church because this is important. When we talk about eschatology, we're talking about fulfillment of God's plan, right? It is indeed a future time, or if we believe Revelation is about the future, it's about, then we talk about future times. Um, and, but really, eschatology is focusing upon fulfillment. We're talking about God's prophecies, God's promises being fulfilled. And so, and so one way we can describe this is we can talk about the kingdom of God. Because it can be rightly be said about the Bible. We want to put one theme to the Bible. Just one, if we want to say, what is the Bible about, right? If you were to say, what is, what's a genre of the Bible, right? Or what, what is this, what is the focus? What's the topic of the Bible? We can, we can say that the grand overarching theme of the Bible is the kingdom of God. The kingdom of God. We're talking about God creating all of this around us, creating the earth, creating us to be part of his kingdom, but because of sin, because of the fall, we have undermined this kingdom. And so since the fall, really, ever since Genesis chapter 3, God has been in the work of redeeming his kingdom in creation. And so we can say that God's redemptive plan, which is pretty much the whole Bible, revolves around really bringing the kingdom of God here on earth under his dominions as image bearers. And so, and so we were created in the image of God. We were created to be kings and queens on this earth. We were created to rule over this earth, to be God's, to God, be God's authority here as his image bearers over this earth. This is supposed to be our dominion. It's about the kingdom of God. And yet because of the fall, we, we failed to do that. And so God then, God is working to want us. Because we see in Genesis chapter 3, right after the fall of man, immediately there's a promise by God, right? A promise of a seed. Seed of Eden, the offspring of Eden, the one who will crush the head of the serpent. There is the promised seed who will redeem mankind. He will, re will lead mankind back to fulfill our purpose, our, our created purpose in life. And when we think about all this, it's really quite amazing. Right? It's This is really when we talk about stuff like eschatology, we think about revelation. This is really where it's all coming down to. We can't just study revelation without studying other pieces of scripture throughout, you know, in the Old Testament, New Testament, all of it. We need to have a pretty tight understanding of how to approach revelation. It's understanding the whole picture. And, and this is applicable to us. The reason why eschatology is important to us today as Christians is because as Christians, we do have a lot of commands to obey, right? We are to make sure we stay pure. We are to make sure we worship God. We come to church. We're part of a church. We're a member of a church. We exercise church discipline. We're to pursue purity. We're to pursue righteousness. We're to be a good husband, good wife, good son, good daughter, a brother and sister, keep one another accountable. We have all these different commandments given to us. But if we don't understand why these commandments are important, we don't understand why we're supposed to do these things. Why did God tell us to do this thing? Why do you even know God at all? What is the purpose behind all this? 
this is what revelation is about. This is what eschatology is about. It's about really coming to the end and seeing what all of this is about. Why does this earth exist? And, and so we, we want to get a better picture of the plan of God, the kingdom of God. And what we'll see throughout scripture is that God's plan, God's plan involves working through covenants. With the covenants here, they're, they're a vehicle through which God's kingdom unfolds in this earth. It's how history unfolds before us. I gave you guys uh, for your midweeks the study of the Abrahamic covenant. Right? The Abrahamic covenant was a key central covenant uh, throughout scripture, repeated, right? Remember, I remember the promises I gave to your forefathers, Abraham, right? Said over and over again. And, and I, I told you guys to study this. I would ask you guys, you know, whether or not this is fulfilled. Has it been fulfilled? Has it been partially fulfilled? Has it not been fulfilled? Who is it fulfilled for? Right, I ask you guys these key questions. And I'm not asking, and I know I'll give you guys three passages. We're going to kind of touch those three passages, but there's a lot of stuff we're going to go through and, and tonight. So I'm hope, I'm, what I'm hoping is that what this sermon, or I guess it's this sermonar uh, is going to be, uh, is it's going to help us understand so that when you guys come back to those questions you guys looked at during midweek, you might have a better answer to them. All right. And one key component to all of this, to studying God's word, is to understanding his plan for us. To understanding the Bible is to understand covenants. And so let's take a look and understand what exactly is a covenant and, and what, are, what are these covenants like in scripture. Um, I grabbed this definition of covenant from my school notes. So I don't know who wrote this definition. It could be my professor or he could have taken it from another book. I'm not completely sure. Um, but I just thought it was pretty good, pretty good definition. It says a covenant is a formal agreement or treaty between two parties with obligations and regulations. There's few key components to this. First, it's a formal agreement. And when we say formal, we're not just saying, yeah, it's a he says, she said type of thing. It's like a, there's, there's an actual handshake to it. There's a contract being signed. There is a sign, right? When we think about covenants, we have stuff like the sign of circumcision, or we have the, the, the laws and obedience to all that, the sacrifices. There's a sign there of how this covenant works out. The new covenant, which we live in today, is a sign of, the, we see the blood of Christ the Lord's Supper as a sign to remember the covenant we have with our God. So there's a formal agreement, agreement in treaty between, it says here, two parties. A covenant is always between two parties, right? Both sides come into mutual agreement to what this covenant relationship looks like. And this covenant includes between two parties that has obligations and regulations. So there's boundaries set. There's expectations set. There are rules in place of how this covenant is supposed to be fulfilled. And so we see here that this, that this covenant here is, is really important. It really defines the relationship between these two parties. Now, there's two types of covenants that we should be aware of. First, there's a conditional one. A conditional covenant, it means that the fulfillment falls upon both parties. One party 
has this if statement, right? If you do this, if you do that, then the second party would will complete it, will complete the covenant, right? And, and there's conditional covenants, and this is not just a biblical term, covenants were around throughout the Old Testament times, throughout different kingdoms, between different kings, and these covenants were made, most of them were made with conditions. Most of them were saying both parties had to, had obligations to fulfill. And when we think about the law, right, the Mosaic law, right, the, the, the Ten Commandments, and all that God has revealed to Israel during that time, the Mosaic Covenant, now, most scholars will say that was a conditional covenant. Right? That was a covenant that was given with Israel were to do some obligations, and if they obey God, obey his law, then they will remain a land and they will grow as a kingdom, as a nation. Right? It was a conditional covenant. Now, there is some debate among scholars that whether or not that was truly conditional or unconditional. Not going to get into that. What we're going to focus upon Today, tonight, is more on the unconditional covenants that we see here in Scripture. An unconditional covenant is still between two parties, but the fulfillment relies upon one party. It rests upon one party. So the difference here, the difference between two is, imagine if you were talking to your parents. Your parents, say you're growing up, you know, in your household, you're a teenager, so you're you don't want to rebel and all that. Um, and, and so your parents look at you and it's like, all right, tells you, all right, if you are good today, I will give you a treat or you're allowed to have this or you're allowed to be on, you're allowed to go on the computer and be on the internet right? or you're allowed to play video games, right? If you do this, if you finish your homework, if you practice piano, right? And all that, that's a conditional agreement being placed upon, right? But the unconditional covenant will be something like this. Say if your parents are talking to you while you're maybe 16, you're getting your driver's permit. And they say to you, well, when you turn 21, when you turn 21 and you know, we were still, we, you know, and, and there's nothing really else say, just when you turn 21, I'll, I'll buy you a car. And they're just, there's, there's not necessarily a condition, but there is indeed a promise being made, right? And, and there is somewhat of a condition that yeah, do you expect that this child that you're talking to as a parent is still your child, right? This child that hasn't ran away from home, like you're not gonna buy a car if the child ran away from home and doesn't return. And but there's but indeed there's there's so there's some condition, but it's not necessarily spoken. The fulfillment rests upon one party to fulfill that relationship, to fulfill that obligation. And what we're gonna see here with the covenants made between God and Abraham. And two other covenants, God and David, and the new covenant, we will see that these are unconditional covenants made by God to man. And there's a key aspect to this to understand that when an unconditional covenant is made between man and God, usually, actually all the time, the responsibility falls upon God to fulfill it. It doesn't fall upon man. On God. That's a good thing because we will most likely fail at fulfilling covenants, right? We know that from, from our own lives, even from scripture. One of the last thing about covenants, Galatians chapter 3, verse 15 says this. Actually, why don't you guys turn there your Bible? We'll have our Bibles, or you guys read on the screen. I know I have it on the screen. 
Um, but we're, but why don't you guys make sure you have your Bibles handy because we are going to turn to a bunch of passages uh, to kind of study all of this stuff. Galatians chapter 3, verse 15. Paul here talks about covenants, talks about what he expects from a man-made covenant. And so if this is expected from a man-made covenant, how much more from a God-made covenant? Uh, Galatians chapter 3, verse 15. To give a human example, brothers, even with a man-made covenant, no one knows it or adds to it once it has been ratified. What Paul is saying here is that even between a covenant between two men or two girls, or between men, between two human beings, it cannot be changed once it's agreed upon. Nothing can be added to it. Nothing can be removed from it. Can't be changed. How much more then of God's covenants with man can't be changed? It must be fulfilled. And so this this gives us a framework then to help us then study the covenants. Because we study covenants in the Old Testament and in the New Testament, we come to see that it is a covenant that has a promise to it. It's unconditional, and it can't be changed. So the first thing we're going to look at is the Abrahamic covenant. Turn me to Genesis chapter 12. Now, I know this is not the first covenant made in the Bible. The first covenant made was between God and Noah. Um, God gave a covenant to Noah, which still is running today. Um, but we're not going to get to that one. We're going to study here the Abrahamic covenant. Genesis chapter 12, verses 1 through 3. This here reads this. Now the Lord said to Abram, Go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land that I will show you. And I will make of you a great nation. And I will bless you and make your name great so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you, and him who dishonors you, I will curse. And in you, all the families of the earth shall be blessed. So this here is the first time God has spoken to Abram. Well, at least the first time we have recorded scripture for us. God may have spoken to him before. This wasn't recorded. But here we see that God spoke to him, and he gave him this promise. And scholars debate a little bit whether or not this is a conditional or unconditional um, I can tell you that I believe it's an unconditional covenant, and we can go into that. Um, that's a whole different other sermon. Um, but I want to lay this out that this is unconditional, not just because of what's said here in chapter 12, but also how God expands and details out this covenant later on in Genesis chapter 17. So turn me there. Genesis chapter 17, looking at verses 1 through 8. Here God kind of shows Abram, how he's going to fulfill this promise he made in chapter 12. Here, Genesis chapter 17. When Abram was 99 years old, the Lord appeared to Abram and said to him, I am God Almighty. Walk before me and be blameless, that I may make my covenant between me and you and may multiply you greatly. Then Abram fell on his face and God said to him, Behold, my covenant is with you. And you shall be the father of a multitude of nations. No longer shall your name be Abram, but your name shall be Abraham. 
For I have made you the father of multiple nation, a multitude of nations. I will make you exceedingly fruitful, and I will make you into nations, and kings shall come from you. And I will establish my covenant between me and you, and your offspring after you, throughout their generations, for an everlasting covenant to be God to you and to your offspring after you. And I will give to you and to your offspring after you the land of your sojourns, all the land of Canaan, for an everlasting possession, and I will be their God. We see here just how, how God really provides these great promises to Abram, this one man. To understand this a little bit more, we'll see a few characteristics of this covenant. First, this covenant was personal to Abraham. To Abraham. That it was through Abraham and his line descendants there will be nations. But even more than just nations, it says here that there will be a line of kings coming through Abraham. And this is important as it relates to the kingdom of God because we were created, Adam was created intending to be a king. We were all intended to be royal images of God here on earth. We need to somehow restore that. And so it's important for God to say, I will make kings come from you, from your line. And showing how God's going to work through Abraham's descendants, but specifically his line, his sons, to have kings to bring this earth back to God's kingdom. To have dominion again. It's personal here. Personal to Abram. But it's also national. We see here that through Abraham a nation will be born. And we know this nation to be Israel. Right? Israel is this nation. And it's not even through Abraham's direct son. It was from his son to his great-grandson. And I think one more generation. And then from there on, we see Israel truly starting to be born. And we get the 12 tribes of Israel. And, and, and through them, through these 12 brothers, uh, Joseph and his brothers, right? We get the 12 tribes of Israel. And, and then we get generations of people being populated, creating this people group. And they were a nation. But they weren't even a nation that had land yet. They were a nation in slavery to Egypt. They were exiles, and yet they were considered Abraham's children, descendants, Israel. So God here is promising the nation will be born. And God says he will be a God to them. He will be their God. And so this nation is not a nation defined by a monarchy. It's not defined by a democracy. It is defined by a theocracy. God will rule over them. God will lead them. God is their head. This is again how God will usher his kingdom through Israel. They again have dominion over this earth. And then that leads us to this third aspect that is global. And we saw that right back in Genesis chapter 12 is that God said, I will bless those who bless you, and, and, and him who dishonors you, I will curse. Through, through Israel, God will bless this earth or he'll curse this earth. Whatever it is, this 
this covenant has global implications. It has global impact. Nations will either be blessed or cursed through Abraham's descendants. And then we see that this covenant is unconditional because God uses the word few times in Genesis 17 that this covenant will be everlasting. The only way something can be everlasting because a man constantly fails is when God fulfills it. When God fulfills his covenant, when he says, I will make this an everlasting covenant, I will give you this land as an everlasting possession, only God can do that. It is an unconditional covenant. And there's more reasons why it's unconditional. We can look at Genesis chapter 15 and all of that. So if you have more questions about how this covenant is unconditional, I can explain that to you some other time. But what we have here is these four different characteristics of the Abrahamic covenants. Now, turn me to Galatians chapter 3. But we saw here that the Abrahamic covenant was personal to Abraham, it was also national to Israel, and it's through Israel nations will be blessed. And so we see this Abrahamic covenant, it was the land was to be given to Israel. It's, it's very Jewish in a sense. It's, it is meant to be for the Jews. Yet we see here, when we come to the New Testament, when we read in Galatians chapter 3, we look at verse 29. It says this, speaking to the church, and if you are Christ, then you are Abraham's offspring, heirs according to promise. And this is amazing because the promise was given to Abraham and his descendants, but here it says the church, us, non-Jewish people, are heirs to this promise. This is quite amazing. And so this then brings us to ask some questions about the Abrahamic Abraham covenant. And the remaining questions are this. Who are indeed the descendants of Abraham? Who is the offspring of Abraham? And do the physical promises, like the land, right? We're, we're, we're the church, but we don't have the land. We, we're not the land of Canaan, right? What, what is this land? Is, does it still matter today? So let's keep those questions in mind. Um, and I'm going to try to speed this up a little bit. So we're going to go down to the Davidic covenant. Turn me to 2 Samuel. I'll cover this one pretty fast because the covenant, I think, has a few things you want that's important to us. Um, so let's just take a quick look at it. The big covenant found in 2 Samuel chapter 7, verses 12 to 16. I'm going to read this for us. Here God is speaking to David. It says, when your days are fulfilled you and you lie down with your fathers, I will raise up your offspring after you, who shall come from your body, and I will establish his kingdom. And he shall build a house for my name, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. I will be to him a father, and he shall be to me a son. When he commits iniquity, I will discipline him with the rod of men, with the stripes of the sons of men. But my steadfast love will not depart from him, as I took it from Saul, whom I put away from before you. 
and your house and your kingdom shall be made sure forever before me. Your throne shall be established forever. This here is this here is an expansion. You notice the language here. It's an expansion of the Abrahamic covenant, but it's given to David. And so God here is really saying, my promise to Abraham continues, and it's going to continue through you, David, through your line, and you're the king, and now it's through you, more kings will continue to come and occupy the throne. And so we see here is that the expansion of Abraham covenant, but we see here that's also personal, personal to David. We see that David's name is the one that we made great. Right? It's his line I would endure. It's also national, where we're talking about this throne of David over Israel, right? Israel will expect to have a king on the throne forever, an everlasting throne. But it's also, in a sense, global. And we didn't really see it in the past read, but we see it later on in, in verse 19, where it says, where David responds to God, and he says this, and yet this was a small thing in your eyes, O Lord God. You have spoken also of your servant's house for a great while to come, and this instruction is for mankind. So when David received his covenant from God, David understands that it's not just for Israel, it's not just for him, but this instruction is for mankind. It's for everyone because, it's, again, it's expansion of the Abrahamic covenant. Those who bless this nation, those who bless you will be blessed, but those who curse you will be cursed. Now turn me to Acts, or you can read on the screen. I won't turn there because I don't have it on my notes. Acts chapter 2. In Acts chapter 2, we see a fulfillment, we see a fulfillment of the Davidic covenant by Jesus Christ, the son of David. In Acts chapter 2, starting in verse 30. This is speaking about David, right? And David, he actually um, prophesies that he will rise up, that, that his, there'll be one who will rise up from the grave again, who will be resurrected. And, and this is how we know that one, that Jesus Christ is the one who David spoke of. Verse 30, being therefore a prophet and knowing that God has sworn with an oath to him that he will set one of his descendants on his throne, he foresaw and spoke about the resurrection of the Christ, that he was not abandoned to Hades, nor did his flesh see corruption. This here we're talking about Jesus Christ, the one who died, yet David understood that he will rise again. Because David understand that there was a promise that there'll be a son on the throne forever. So David foresaw the resurrection. This was fulfilled by Christ. When Jesus Christ rose from the grave, we saw that this is indeed the son of David who will sit on the throne forever. But there yet remains a question. Because when the David covenant was given to David and given to Israel, it was Understanding that Israel will still exist and that the king, the throne of David, will be a physical throne here on earth, ruling over Israel in this physical land. Yet Jesus Christ ascended to heaven. He's not here physically here on earth, though he has a physical body. And so the remaining question is this Is the, his throne a spiritual one or an earthly throne? 
right? When we say that Jesus is reigning right now, are we saying that he is reigning from David's throne presently? What does that mean? Has this covenant been fulfilled in that sense? Moving on now to the new covenant. Um, I don't want to read those verses. You can just mark those down for us. But the new covenant here is given to us in the prophets by Jeremiah and by Ezekiel. They speak of the new covenant. And when they speak of the new covenant, they're speaking it directly to the house of Israel and the house of Judah. And so the first thing that we'll see about the new covenant is that it was given to Israel and Judah. It was given to Israel and Judah. And, and this is given to Israel and Judah when they were in exile. So Israel, Israel has failed to uphold their end of the Mosaic covenant. They have failed to obey the law. They're in exile. They're being punished. And yet God says to them, I will redeem you. And I will create in you a new heart. And that's the language of the new covenant that's used in the Old Testament. That he will create in Israel. Again, speaking to Israel, speaking to his people Israel, you'll create them a new heart. And then God also says in the new covenant that nations will come to know the God of Israel. Nations will come to know God through Israel, through him redeeming Israel, through him bringing Israel back from exile, reestablishing them as his nation and his people. And we find out in Hebrews or sorry, in 1 Corinthians, well, it was also in Hebrews, but the Hebrew, in 1 Corinthians chapter 11, verse 25, we'll go and turn there. 1 Corinthians chapter 11, verse 25, this here, Paul is writing about the Lord's Supper. And Paul says this, in the same way, also Jesus, he took the cup after supper, saying, this cup, is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. And so we see here that the new covenant was inaugurated by Jesus Christ, so it was personal to him. Right? So the God gave Israel and Judah the new covenant, but there wasn't, he didn't work through a single man during that time in the Old Testament. We see that God worked the new covenant through Jesus Christ, who came later. It's through his name, his blood, that new covenant comes to us. So it was personal to Jesus. But this leaves us a few questions. Because when we talk about the new covenant, in Hebrews chapter 8, verse 13, we find out that the new covenant makes the old one obsolete. Right? Hebrews 8, 13. And speaking of a new covenant, he makes the first one obsolete. And what is becoming obsolete and growing old is ready to vanish away. And so the question here is, what exactly is being fulfilled by this new covenant? And does it, does it take away the old stuff? What does, what does it mean by the first one? What is the first one? What is the author of Hebrews talking about here? And so we have a few questions about the new covenant as well. And really, our question about the new covenant is this. How does the church participate in it? How exactly does the church participate? So we understand we live in the New Covenant. We're New Covenant church, New Covenant believers. 
But how is that, does that play out? Because again, the new covenant was first given to Israel, first given to Judah. How did it suddenly become the church, being part of the new covenant? So I, I covered a lot of stuff here. We covered a lot of different covenants. We covered a lot of different things. And I, I wanted to get an understanding of this to realize that there's a lot of questions that we have to wrestle with here, right? A lot of questions. Um, and I'm trying to give as brief an explanation of all this as I can. So I know there might be more questions in your head or you might be confused. It's okay, just come talk to me. I'll love to flesh it out some more of you. But let me go ahead and show you this real quick. Uh, this I grabbed from a book called Understanding End Times Prophecy by ben, Paul Benware. Um, he is a, um, he is dispensational. So he, if you read that book, he'll defend dispensation and he'll go against, uh, he'll, he'll argue against covenant theology. Um, not in a bad way, like he still says they're good scholars, they're brothers and sisters in Christ, um, but he'll give his defense for his view. Um, but I thought this chart was helpful in terms of just understanding, kind of gaining an understanding of the covenant. He also includes in this chart the Palestinian covenant found in Deuteronomy chapter 30. I haven't studied that too much, so I don't know too much about it. Um, uh, so I won't talk about that there. But we see the other, other covenant that we talked about here, right? The Abrahamic, the, the Davidic, uh, the new covenant. And we see here being fulfilled through the cross, but yet not completely fulfilled. We see much of it actually being fulfilled in Revelation. And that's why it's important for us when we study Revelation to keep in mind of these covenants. Because there's promises given to God throughout Scripture that remains unfulfilled. Revelation is the answer. And so when we come to Revelation, we have to kind of have a better understanding of what we're dealing with here. What promises are actually being fulfilled when God's describing how the future times will unfold before us? When we talk about these covenants, and now more focusing upon Israel and the church, because remember, the remaining questions I gave you guys were really about Israel and the church. How does that play out? We're really talking about continuity and discontinuity. And when I talk about that, I'm talking about continuity between the old covenant and new and the new covenant. Uh, not new, sorry, continuity between the old testament and new testament. So continuity between Israel and the church. Let me explain. Continuity. We're talking about terms and definitions that's used both for the church and Israel. And we actually see this throughout scripture, right? Um, we recognize that the church and Israel are both called the people of God. Uh, this is most played out for us in Ephesians chapter 2, verse 15 and 16, right? In Ephesians chapter 2, that's the, that's the portion of scripture where Paul writes that we are created into one man, right? Ephesians chapter 2, starting in verse 15, he says here that uh, he being Christ, he might create in himself one new man in place of two. And in place of two, the two are Jews and Gentiles, Israel and the church may create in himself one new man in place of two, so making peace, and might re reconcile us both to God in one body through the cross. And so here we see that there is this sense that both Israel and the church are the people of God. So there's this continuity there, right? Another continuity, circumcision, right? We understand circumcision was really emphasized as a sign of the flesh, of an actual real circumcision. I'm not going to get to what, what that is, but you know, a real circumcision made by the made by the Jewish men 
as a sign that they are covenant people of God in the Old Testament. But in the New Testament, we are also called a circumcision, but not of the flesh, but spiritually. Philippians chapter 3, verse 3 says here, for we, the church, are the circumcision who worship by the Spirit of God and glory in Christ Jesus and put no confidence in the flesh. So here he's, Paul is saying we are of spiritual circumcision. And so again, these terminologies being used in Old Testament, New Testament, used to describe both Israel and the church. Uh, we see that we we're both called the sons of Abraham. We saw this already in our, in our passage of Galatians. Romans also talks about this. Romans chapter 4. Romans chapter 4, verse 11 says he received a sign of uh, talking about Abraham. He received a sign of circumcision. So this is the physical one. He received a sign of circumcision as a seal of the righteousness that he had by faith while he was still uncircumcised. The purpose was to make him the father of all who believe without being circumcised so that righteousness would be counted them as well. And to make him, Abraham, the father of the circumcised who are not merely circumcised, but also walk in the footsteps of the faith that our father Abraham has before he was circumcised. And so we see here that both circumcised and the uncircumcised are called sons of Abraham. Both Israel and the church are called sons of Abraham. And then we see the new covenant blessings which we covered in Hebrews chapter 8. They were given to Israel, but yet the church falls underneath the new covenant. But then there's also some discontinuity. And here when I talk about discontinuity, what I mean by that is I mean distinct terms and descriptions that are used separately for the church in Israel. For instance, New Testament, whenever they use the term Israel, they tend, I'll say 99% of the time, 98, whatever, didn't do the actual math, 99% of the time, it's used to talk about Israel as ethnic Jews. So it's distinguishing them from the church. One example of this, let me see what's up there. Uh, one example of this, let me read Romans 11, 11. says this, Paul writes, so I ask, uh, did they, meaning Israel, stumble in order that they might fall? By no means. Rather, through Israel's trespass, salvation has come to the Gentiles so as to make Israel jealous. And so we see here a distinction between Israel and Gentiles. Israel is not used to describe the church here. It's used to describe ethnic Jews in Romans 11, 11. And so there's still a distinction of who Israel is, even in the New Testament. And then we see here that promises remain, still remain for Israel. The promise still remains for Israel. We Again, Romans chapter 11. Uh, you, I, you guys read parts of this um, in your midweeks. Uh, but Romans 11, uh, verse 25 to 27. Here we see a promise still being made to Israel, the nation. Lest you be wise, you know, so I do not want you to be unaware of this mystery verse. A partial hardening has come upon Israel until the fullness of the Gentiles has come in. And in this way, all Israel will be saved as it is written. And here Paul quotes an Old Testament prophecy of how these promises given to Israel still stand today. 
And so the promises for Israel still stand today. And then the apostles, after the resurrection of Jesus Christ, still expect or anticipate Israel to be restored. And this is something here we have to wrestle with. In Acts chapter 1, verse 6, when they were right before the Lord ascended up to heaven, they asked him this. So when they come together, they ask Jesus, Lord, will you at this time restore the kingdom of Israel? And Jesus actually didn't give a straight answer to them. Jesus didn't say, hey, there's no longer an Israel. It's just a church now. Israel, nor, did, nor did Jesus say, yes, I will restore Israel. Jesus kind of just said, no, just go out and be my witness. So Jesus didn't give a direct answer, but yet there's still this open-ended question. That Israel, the nation, the land will still be restored. Is that going to come? When I'm talking about continuity and discontinuity, the reason why I describe these things is because in order to understand the terms I was throwing out earlier, the dispensationalism and covenant theology, we need to understand that they're, they're, they're more than just about the church in Israel. They're, they're also talking about hermeneutics. They talk about other things as well. But I'm really focusing upon church in Israel. And where they lie differently is how much is the question is this how much continuity and discontinuity do they see in the whole Bible? How much continuity and discontinuity do they see in the whole Bible? And the reason I draw it out this way is because there is a spectrum. I want to say everyone is just when everyone's dispensational, they believe the same thing, or everyone's covenant theology, they believe the same thing. They fall along this line of a spectrum of how exactly how much discontinuity and how much continuity do they see. And so for dispensationalism, they will say that there's a lot of discontinuity. Church is not Israel, that land promises still remain fulfilled, and that the Davidic throne remains empty because Jesus has not come back down to earth yet to sit on this earthly throne. But covenantalists or covenant theologians believe that the church has replaced Israel. So all the promises given to Israel is now being fulfilled through the church. Land promises have already been fulfilled when the Davidic kingdom was established and is now more spiritually fulfilled through the church in evangelizing through the world. So it's more spiritualized. And the Davidic throne is right now being occupied spiritually in heaven by Christ. So we see here two different aspects, two different ways of viewing the Bible, really, right? Viewing all the covenants in the Bible. And we may fall in different camps. Even most of the pastors here, we all fall in different places. I'll tell you where I fall. That's kind of where I fall. All right, I, I'm more dispensationalist, but I call myself a progressive dispensationalist, which is, you know, that's, again, another term. So, again, there's a lot of different ways to see it. Right? So I wouldn't go all the way to classical. I still think there's some, for instance, let me talk about the Davidic throne. I believe that the Davidic throne is only partially fulfilled right now. That Jesus indeed is reigning as the Davidic king, but when he comes back on earth, he will reestablish Israel and sit on the earthly Davidic throne, reign over Jerusalem, the new Jerusalem, and all of the earth. Right, so I see it's partially fulfilled. So there's this, you know, both aspect to it. Um, and so, you know, so that's why, like, I wouldn't say I'm completely all the way to the discontinuity side, but yet I'm more, I'll still say I'm more dispensational than, than most. And I'll call myself 
what I, and there's a lot of different theologies that falls in this camp. They call themselves progressive dispensationalists, right? And again, we may all fall in different places. Even the pastors here may fall in different places. We're all still brothers and sisters, and we all still love each other. We still all love Christ. We just, it's just, again, this is just the theology of how we understand Israel and the church. Sorry, I know this is a lot. Again, if you have questions, talk to me. I'd love to go through this more. But let me go ahead and just summarize everything that we, we've gone through here. And let me try to kind of just wrap this up a little bit better for us. We see here that God has a plan for his people. And one thing I do want to emphasize is that God indeed has one people. Has one set of people. Those are believers. Those who believe in Jesus Christ. Believe in God's promises. Believe that their salvation is in Christ alone. And that they must repent of their sins and come to saving faith. Now, as a me as a progressive dispensationalist, I believe that underneath one people God, there's two distinct people groups, Israel and the church. Um, some people say they're combined together as one, um, so there's no distinction in the group. I think there's still two distinctions, but they're one people God, both Israel and the church. Um, and so and so what we see here, what we want to wrap up, what we, I think we all can agree upon, both whether, whatever side you're on, we can all agree upon first this. Israel. Israel was always a vehicle for the Savior and Messiah. It was always a vehicle for Christ to come. He was always the promised seed. Israel was that vehicle. We see that Israel will be restored as a nation. Now, again, it could be when I say Israel will be restored as a nation, we, we were saying that this will happen. This is still a promise remain unfulfilled. Now, as a dispensationalist, I believe there will be a physical re restoration as more common theologians might say is a spiritual fulfillment that will come. That is, Israel, the spiritual Israel, the church, will be restored and lead other nations. Right? And so, that's, so there, there's, there's where the difference is, but we can both agree that Israel will be restored. This has not been fully fulfilled yet. And that there will still be then a Davidic throne, whether it's spiritual or physical. And this Davidic throne, you will see clearly in Revelation. In Revelation. You see clearly in Revelation when, when Jesus Christ returns. But we also agree, we will also agree upon a church. And church is that the church is indeed grafted in. How that grafted in looks like plays out, sure, we might describe and that differently, but we will all agree that a church is grafted into the kingdom of God through the new covenant. The church is commissioned. The church is commissioned to bring the gospel to the ends of the earth. That is the purpose of the church here. We are commissioned to do that. And the church will also be rewarded with a future reign. So there's indeed a sense of kings and kingdomhood in the church as well. And this is important for us to remember because again, kings, the kingdom of God is what's, what's, what, what's what we're talking about here. And all this plays in Revelation because it helps us interpret Revelation. Let me give you an example. Last week, we covered Revelation chapter 3, verse 10. Let's just actually just re read that real quick just to refresh our memory. Um, I know I'm going a little bit longer, um, so forgive me. Revelation chapter 3, verse 10. Jesus here says, 
because you have kept my word about patient endurance, I will keep you from the hour trial that is coming on the whole world to try those who dwell on the earth. Now, how do we understand this verse from these different perspectives? Well, first we can agree. And when I say agree, I'm, I'm assuming that both the covenant theologians and the dispensationalists have a futurist position that this is the future hour of trial that's coming. But we agree that this hour of trial is, was prophesied back in Daniel chapter 9. So this is the seven-year tribulation. We, we can both agree with that, that this will come. This, this tribulation will come upon the come upon the world. But where there may be disagreements in the continuity tribe, they will say that the hour of trial will come upon everyone, including the church in Israel together. This hour of trial will come upon all people in the earth. And therefore, when Jesus says he will keep you from it, it's a spiritual, spiritual protection. That, that their salvation will be secure, but they will still physically suffer during this tribulation period. But for this continuity tribe, they will say this about this verse. That the hour of trial will come upon this world and specifically for Israel, because Daniel chapter 9 was given to Israel. So that hour of trial will come upon Israel and will come upon and will impact the whole world. But Jesus Christ will protect the church physically and spiritually by rapturing them before this trial comes. And so the church will not go through these trials. And that's what that's how they would interpret Revelation chapter 3, verse 10. That the church will be protected, both physically and spiritually. So we see here how theology helps us interpret scripture. And while our theology may have may fall in different camps, we have to be able to wrestle with this and engage with this together. And as I preached this passage last time, the, the main point of Revelation chapter 3, verse 10 is that Jesus will protect us. Whether that's spiritually, physically, I don't know. There is a certain mystery to God's word that I don't think God really wants us to fully know 100%, which is why we wrestle with it. But what we do know is that God will protect us. And that's the whole point. And so that's why we can come to an understanding and agreement to this, even if we have two different tribes. Let me go ahead and end. The big idea for this is God's plan of redemption for Israel and the church centers on Jesus Christ, who is the fulfiller, the mediator of God's covenants. Fuller meteor God's covenants. God's plan of redemption for Israel in a church centers on Jesus Christ. The fuller and meteor God's covenants. Um, real quick, let me just display three applications. You guys can just write these down. We see here that this is about our lives, everything, creation is about spreading God's word, the gospel. When we think about the Christian life, it's not about how do we make ourselves right with God. The church exists here on earth to bring the gospel to the end of the world. It's always about God's kingdom and God's name. That's what all this is about. It's not about us. And so this leads to the second application. This humbles us. It humbles us because we just don't understand God's plan sometimes. 
we, we wrestle with this because this is indeed a mystery. It's a mysterious plan, and yet God's wisdom is higher than ours. His foolishness is higher than ours. God is wise, and he has a plan that will be fulfilled, and we are simply humbled by it. Humbled by how God placed us all out. And finally, we are grateful. People that God is indeed acting to save us because he didn't have to. He didn't have to go through this plan. He didn't have to work through the covenants. He could have stopped the Israel and been like, you know what? You guys are hopeless. But yet he persisted on because of these unconditional promises he made. He made with us. With human beings. And it's through all this, through the covenants, through God's plan that we are saved. It should humble us. It should make us grateful. It helps us live our life. It helps us really purpose our life. And think about where our lives end up at, where we're all going to, the way we direct our lives. This is why we study Revelation. I, I hope this was helpful. Again, I went through a lot of stuff that took, you know, two or three weeks of school lecture for me to go through. So uh, there's probably a lot of stuff that I can still talk about. So if you still have more questions, I know this was not everything. So I can talk to you more about these things. You can email me your questions. You can message me or you can talk to me after fellowship i'll be willing to engage with you about this stuff because i know this is a lot i know some of you guys might be confused or lost or maybe stop paying attention halfway through that's okay um this is recorded you need to listen to it again um and we will continue to cover this as we go through revelation so i want to give you guys somewhat of a background as we continue to go through this series let me go ahead and pray for us father i thank you for your word your whole council. It's really amazing to see how everything unfolds before us. It's it's huge. It's big. It's everywhere. It's, and yet, it is for us. It is for us to wrestle with. It is for us to know. It's for us to appreciate so that we may come to a better understanding of who you are and how you want to direct us in our walks with you. Thank you, God, for giving us your word for saving us and, and for just really giving us Jesus Christ, your son, our savior. Lord, we, we know nothing. We know nothing other than what you have revealed to us through your word, through your spirit, and through our walks with you. God, thank you for being such a good and gracious God who walks with us. So then let us then Worship you always. Be with us then for the rest of our nights. Pray out this in your name. Amen.